Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life, legend and legacy of King David. And we'll be finding out how the boy who killed Goliath became one of the most important figures in the Bible and an inspiration to later writers and artists. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. The story of King David is one of the most compelling in the Bible. The story of a shepherd who slayed the giant Goliath and became king, but who was also criticised for being a murderer and an adulterer. David has been called an aggressive leader, a devious politician and a ruthless war chief, but it was his bloodline that it was said that Jesus descended from. In later centuries, the story of David inspired artists around the world, from Michelangelo's sculpture to the works of Caravaggio to various representations in literature, film and TV. But in in tonight's show, we want to go behind the legend and explore the life as well as the legacy of King David. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor David Shepherd is Professor in Hebrew Bible Old Testament at Trinity College Dublin and is the founding director of the Trinity Centre for Biblical Studies there. And he's the author of a groundbreaking new book, King David, Innocent Blood and Blood Guilt, published by Oxford University Press. Professor Tobias Winwright is Professor of Moral Theology at St. Patrick's Pontifical University, Maynooth University, an expert on ethics, war and peace, as well as fundamental moral theology. His books include After the Smoke Clears, The Just War Tradition and Post-War Justice. Well, you're both very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Professor Ruth Karras, Leckie Professor of History at Trinity College Dublin and a leading expert on medieval women, gender and sexuality and the author of the book Thou Art the Man, The Masculinity of David in the Christian and Jewish Middle Ages. And I'll also be joined later on by Dr. Bridget Martin, teaching fellow in the School of Classics at UCD and an expert on Greek tragedy. Well, you're all very welcome. And David, I might begin with you because I've heard of names determining people's lives and careers, but I think this is the first time we've had someone on the show whose name perhaps influenced their choice of subjects because your first name is David, your second name is Shepherd, and you've written a book about the most famous David who started off as a shepherd. Yeah, it was a concern, frankly, because um, I was worried that people would be open, look at see the front cover of the book and think, oh my goodness, what's going on here? But in a sense, probably, it was a bit like I was predestined to write this book. I mean, I, I've, I grew up in you know, a family uh, where you know, biblical things were talked about regularly. And so from a very early age, I was hearing about David and probably was embedded deep in my psyche from a very early age. But I've come to David in a sense a little bit later in my academic career, but over the years teaching and, uh, and, and reading and writing a little bit about David persuaded me that perhaps I had one or two things to say about David, um, my namesake. <laughs> and people might be familiar with, you know, Michelangelo's David or with, you know, Jesus being of the house of David. And they know of him as a, as a biblical king. But I, I suspect a lot of people have uh, an image of David of being a somewhat, you know, boring, you know, holy figure. Whereas actually there's sex, adultery, violence, betrayal, that it very much is a kind of a biblical Game of Thrones story. Yeah, he's the, he's the kind of Hollywood character of the Old Testament in a way. I mean, it, it really does have everything. I think it's the most, the stories about David that we find in, in the books of Samuel and, and First Kings really do contain some of the most vivid narrative, vivid story and storytelling in the, in the Old Testament. Um, and he's a captivating figure. He's an absolutely captivating figure in part because um, of the context uh, out of which he emerges, the, you know, the kind of birth, the development of the monarchy. Um, but then also, of course, because of his legacy, um, in a sense, the House of David and the Christian, eventual Christian appropriation of 
uh, the Davidic line, you know, Jesus, son of David, etc. So he's a captivating figure. So let's maybe talk about his, his breakthrough moment, you know, the slaying of Goliath. Uh, how is that told in the Bible? What is, remind us of that story. Sure. Well, this is in effect his entrance onto the stage. I mean, he has a kind of um, sneak preview when he's anointed, when he's anointed, but anointed in secret. Um, and then it's really his entrance on the kind of public stage is, is his tangle with Goliath, which doesn't go well for Goliath at all. And I think what's very interesting about that moment, obviously, this is, this is David, somebody who should have no chance against the Philistine champion, this, this, this Goliath, this giant. And this is very much the story of little versus large. This is very much the story of somebody who should have no chance against um, somebody who has all the advantages and should crush him. And of course, the story itself is primarily about the way in which, in effect, the story tells, in effect, of divine intervention on behalf of, of, of somebody should, who should have no chance and a kind of vindication and delivery of Israel um, from the Philistines, uh, you know, in the face of incredible odds. But what's really interesting, and this is in a sense where David begins his reputation as a kind of redoubtable warrior, the very first words he says as he enters the scene is, what are you going to do for me if I can kill Goliath? So in a sense, he is a warrior from the beginning. I mean, he says, look, I've killed bears and lions while I've been looking after the sheep. Um, now who do you want me to kill? So he probably earns from the start his reputation as a redoubtable warrior. Tobias, the king is Saul and from the start he seems to be afraid of David because the fear that David is going to usurp the throne and, and take over and uh, David has to go in and hiding and has opportunities to kill Saul but chooses not to take them. Right. Saul is actually jealous of David. And David's successes, I, I mean, the people would cheer that Saul had killed thousands, but David tens of thousands. And so this jealousy developed over time. And, and so David did have to rush off and hide. And he did have opportunities to kill Saul while Saul was sleeping. And yet he did not. He showed mercy. And he also thought that it was not his role to execute Saul, to carry out and to vindicate justice and to kill Saul, who was anointed, God's anointed one. That's actually the Hebrew word, uh, Messiah. And, and in Greek, in the New Testament, it would be Christ. And so Saul was the anointed one. David had been anointed, um, yes, but um, he still regarded Saul as God's anointed one and that it was not David's role to kill Saul. And they reconcile eventually. They do off and on. Yes, they do. I mean, that's another thing about David. Um, even when David himself is king later on and sins, um, repentance is a big part of um, who he is. And so forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation is a part of this story in First and Second Samuel. David, perhaps the most scandalous story around David is the story of Bathsheba and Uriah, the way he lusts after this woman, he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant. And when he's unable to ensure that Uriah sleeps with her and then uh, is, is a plausible candidate to be the father, he arranges to have Uriah killed. Yeah, it's an incredible story in a way. I mean, it's an incredible story to have included in, in a story which is allegedly about David and what a great guy he is, because this is him at his absolutely lowest point. Um, so all the things you've just described are, are described within, within the text. I mean, I think the text is partly, certainly about him sleeping with Uriah and the consequences that follow from that with, with Uriah's wife. But it's really fundamentally about the taking of Uriah's life. And, and by this point, he's very aware of, of the risks of taking innocent life, of taking innocent blood. And, and in fact, it, it's quite interesting because he's very aware and, and alert to this, knows that actually if, if Uriah can be, if it can be the case that Uriah falls in battle, well, that's very convenient for him and covers his tracks. And, and then he will avoid blood guilt. But actually, of course, he, he goes further. And what he does is he sends Uriah back to the battlefront not simply to fall in battle if that happens, but in fact to fall in battle because he sent him with a letter back to his general, Joab, telling him to put him where the battle is the hottest, where he's certain to die, and then to in fact withdraw from Uriah in order to make sure that he dies. And, and that is a step too far. 
Though he escapes public blood guilt, he can't escape the criticism or the condemnation of the prophet, Nathan, who then confronts him with what he's done. And so he's not subject to public blood guilt, David, for this, because Uriah has fallen in battle um, and, and violence happens in battle. But the knowledge that David has actively contrived, not left it to fate, but actively contrived to ensure that Uriah dies for David's own advantage, this is completely unacceptable to this prophet and this prophet's God and David's God. And so therefore, David is, is the recipient of enormous consequences, you know, serious grave consequences, you know, an oracle delivered by the prophet that will have massive ramifications for him and for his family, for his dynasty. And there is something very Shakespearean about that, the way Nathan confronts him with his his sins. And, and there is this kind of divine punishment then because the child who is born of that relationship uh, dies, I think, seven days after birth. So there is punishment and retribution as well. There is. And, and, and it's very interesting because it's quite clear throughout these stories that when innocent blood has been shed, somehow blood must be shed, right? Somehow blood must be the only way of remedying this in the global sense of things is that blood must be shed. And and that son dies. David doesn't die, but that son dies. And in a sense, that's almost a fate worse than death because the only way that David can live on is through his sons, uh, through his sons who will inherit the throne. And in a sense, that's that's worse. So Tobias, given that David is credited with writing, I think it's half of the Psalms, how do you, how do you reconcile the contradictions in his character then that he's such a fundamental part of the Bible, he's, he's in a way the foundation stone for so much of it, and yet you have these, these contradictions, these controversies, these scandals? Well, we must remember that the Bible just didn't drop out of the sky as it is. Even at the time of Jesus, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, did not even agree on what constituted their canon of the scriptures. And so First and Second Samuel, First um, and Second Kings, these were written by what theologians call the Deuteronomistic historians. And there was multiple writers over many years, as well as editors. And most scholars think that what we now read was actually gathered together, edited around the time of the exile in the 6th century BC. And what had happened is that the northern kingdom Israel had been destroyed earlier by Assyria, and then Judah had fallen to the Babylonians. And these accounts were drawn together to show why. And Deuteronomistic theologians at the time, they had this cause-effect view. If you do something wrong, if you sin, there will be bad consequences. If you do God's law, God's will, good consequences. So as they were putting together these stories, which were oral, some of them go back to, you know, in the 900s BC. But when this was actually gathered together, as we now have it, they were attempting to explain why this had happened and that the answer was sin. So these stories about David's sin, such as with Bathsheba, that's, you know, why there's consequences. There's consequences to your actions. And yes, there is forgiveness. However, God expected God actually to be the king, no idolatry uh, and all these things. So in First and Second Samuel, the story is of David. He is a character that has virtue. He also has vices. He does what is right, defending the people from the invaders, the Philistines, but also he does you know, shedding of innocent blood and he does adultery. So he is a mixed figure, and the key is, as was said a moment ago by David, God is the one that even with the unexpected, even people through their faults or people who are little rather than large, God will still achieve God's will even with flawed people. Uh, and Tobias, uh, David and Bathsheba have another child then, uh, Solomon. And of course, we know about the wisdom of Solomon and he becomes such a, a major figure in the Bible then afterwards. Is there, is, is, is there a case to be made that David wasn't as wise as Solomon? Well, David was certainly very savvy. He was intelligent. He was shrewd in many respects. Um, Solomon is called the wisest person. Um, but even Solomon had his flaws. He made his mistakes as well. And he had 
what, a thousand concubines. David had multiple wives as well. Um, and he also enlarged the army. There was conscription. And part of the point of these stories was that maybe monarchy is not such a good thing. And so even after the exile, although there was a hope for a restored monarchy, later on, by the time of Jesus, that had been pretty much given up, that they're going to be a people in diaspora, living elsewhere, and that trying to have a king other than God may have been a mistake. David, I think the image that people have of David, especially for that first fight with Goliath, is of maybe a weakling. You know, he's this small boy with the slingshot, you know, the sling taking on this giant. But as as you've shown, you know, he's a he's a big warrior. He's already been killing lions and bears, you know, as he when he becomes king, he is still a famous warrior and involved in all of these battles. So so it's it's a different image than the the popular one. I think the 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 popular image if it um as the sort of Sunday school version of David really is. And, and that's partly because of the audience. I think the Sunday school portrait of David is presented for, it's you know, presented for children in a sense. So you've got this attempt to make sure. I think the text, I think the text does set up, as I said, this kind of little versus large, et cetera. But but it's clear that, you know, he's not a toddler <laughs> when he when he takes the field against against Goliath. Um and there are different ways in which the text tries to to kind of, you know, sort of pit the David and Goliath story. I mean, he goes without armor, right? And, you know, he's he's tried on the armor, it doesn't fit him, it doesn't suit him. Uh, he's going against Goliath, who's not only massive but well armed. So, I mean, it is a truly David and Goliath story. It's the archetypal David and Goliath story. But it's quite clear that David is utterly formidable in battle, and he is somebody who cannot be be underestimated. I, I think part of the the challenge in our understanding of David is that that we've we've understood in a sense that he is a warrior, but not as clearly perhaps understood that actually he's somebody who, notwithstanding the problem and situation with Uriah and 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 Bathsheba, um, somebody who's deeply exercised about the problem of of blood that shouldn't be shed and and so that's a side of david that i think that we haven't haven't heard much of before and if this was a, a TV series, you'd you'd certainly be able to have the story of David run for you know ten years or more because there's no shortage of content. You have a son who rises up in rebellion. Is it Absalom? And then Joab, who you mentioned, who is the person who I think is the nephew of David and and who and who puts Uriah on the front line so that he he falls in battle. He ends up falling foul of David as well. He does. Joab's Joab's an absolutely captivating character um, within the narrative, within the stories about David. He is represented um, in the Hebrew Bible, at least, as as David's nephew. Um, he is his most important general. He is the person who does what he can to make sure that David stays on the throne, and he's instrumental in all of that. And yet, at the end, actually, Joab, uh, when David is handing over his kingdom to his son, those instructions make it very clear that Joab must not be allowed to die in peace. His gray head go down to the grave in peace. Why is that? Because as has been clear, I think, throughout the stories, Joab has gone too far. Joab has, in two cases at least, he has taken the life of, of men who, whose lives shouldn't have been taken. And he's done so under the cover of war. And he has shed innocent blood. And that's clear in the narratives, I think, up to that point. They're both rivals. They're both Joab's rivals. They're both, they're both people who could have taken Joab's place as David's generals. And, and they fall afoul of his sword. And David, in the end, knows that this innocent blood will haunt his kingdom and will haunt Solomon's kingdom if it is not remedied in some way. And so that's why David makes it clear to Solomon that Joab... So he's a, he's a very, very interesting character within, in the end. I think he knows, he knows what's coming and he may feel as if, well, he had to do what he had to do. David doesn't feel that way and knows that, that, that innocent blood has been shed and knows that there will be consequences if Joab is not dealt with. 
So it becomes very much like a mafia godfather type story where, you know, certain people have to be taken out and certain people aren't aren't good to have around when there is a handover of power and ruthlessness overtakes any kind of family loyalty or any other kind of loyalty. And I think I think that's a measure of how deeply felt this notion of innocent blood was the, that 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 if it's not dealt with you know, if people are allowed to kill with impunity, that there will be terrible consequences in a sense. And that I think that's part of what motivates David, who hasn't been able to be fair. You said you, you sort of asked, was he as wise as Solomon? Well, in the end, he asks Solomon to do what David himself was not willing or able to do. And that is to dispatch his general because David simply wasn't able to do that. And that's, I think, a kind of weakness it's a kind of, from the narrator's perspective, a kind of weakness in his character. He's somebody who struggles with, well, we all struggle with parenting. He struggles with parenting. He struggles with his family relations and doing what he has to do for the wider sake of his dynasty. I think he really struggles with that. And I think that's one of the things that the story is about. Yeah, he definitely struggles with parenting and probably, you know, would have been a lot easier if he didn't have so many children with so many different different women. And is there a real jealousy there over who's going to succeed David? The fact that Solomon becomes the the anointed one and 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 I'm sure others then felt that they were losing out. Oh yes, well, uh, I mean, yes, his 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 heirs, his successors, his potential successors drop like flies um, over the course of, of several chapters, really, from chapter 13 of Second Samuel onwards. One of them dies at the hands of Absalom, and, and Absalom incurs blood guilt in killing his brother. And that's one of the main things which animates the story after the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba is the, is the eruption of blood guilt right in the middle of his family in his son. So, one son kills the other and incurs blood guilt. And by incurring blood guilt, he must then pay. So immediately you've got two heirs or successors knocked out in one go. And so, and then of course we hear of another one, Adonijah, who eventually falls, falls uh, at the hands of Solomon uh, toward, the end of, toward the end of the story. And does he die a peaceful death in the end, David? Well, David does die a peaceful death. Yes, he does indeed. And I think that's, no accident, as it were. I mean, he is shrewd. He is well protected. He, he knows that he, he cannot, he's, he's not vulnerable to Joab. But I think he's worried that Solomon, his, his, his son, might well be potentially vulnerable to Joab the general if he's allowed to, if he's allowed to live. Um, but David himself does die, die a peaceful death. Okay, well, tonight we are talking about King David, the life, the legend and the legacy. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Professor Ruth Karras, Leckie Professor of History at Trinity College Dublin, about how people viewed David in the Middle Ages and this idea of him being one of the nine worthies. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome back. We're talking history and we're continuing our discussion on the life, legend and legacy of King David. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Ruth Karras, Leckie Professor of History at Trinity College Dublin and a leading expert on medieval women, gender and sexuality and the author of the book, Thou Art the Man, The Masculinity of David in the Christian and Jewish Middle Ages. Ruth, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. So can I ask, why is David such an interesting figure to use to explore the idea of masculinity in these times? Well, because he is a very important biblical figure. So in the Middle Ages, there are always biblical figures that people are supposed to pattern themselves after. And for women, it's really clear. You've got the Virgin Mary, and then you've also got Mary Magdalene as a... Uh, as an example of repentance. For men, well, you're supposed to be like Jesus, but you can't. Uh, it's really an unachievable goal. And if you look at, I mean, there are saints also, but if you look at other biblical characters, David is a great hero, uh, and he's presented in the Bible also as being the ancestor of the Messiah. And he is also a man. He's flawed. He commits sins, and yet... He is forgiven by God and becomes this great hero and, and great builder. So he becomes um, an example for people. And I got interested in this. Originally, I thought I was going to write a book on male friendships in the Middle Ages. 
and how they're viewed in Christianity and Judaism. And I thought, well, I'll start with David and Jonathan as sort of biblical example and how people thought about that. And then I realized that that's not so much what's important about David and that there are other uh, aspects of his life that were more important in the Middle Ages compared to the things that we now think are most important. And in the Middle Ages, and I'd never heard of these before, the Nine Worthies, and he was one of the Nine Worthies, and alongside him you had uh, King Arthur and Alexander the Great, but yeah. what were they, nine figures who were seen as, what, exceptional in, in history? Yes, particularly uh, exceptional as generals. So they this develops in the late Middle Ages, and it becomes a very popular theme for poetry and also for wall painting. And so you have even... You have noblemen decorating their houses with paintings of the nine worthies. And then you also have um, aldermen of cities decorating their city hall with this, even though you know they're not nobles, but these are still you know, who they look up to. And the, the worthies are divided into three groups. There's three Old Testament, three pagan, and three Christian. And so David is one of the three Old Testament worthies along with Joshua and Judith Maccabeus. But what's interesting about that is that the others are there. They're there absolutely for their military prowess, and they're shown with their weapons. And David is also shown with his weapon, which is a slingshot, but he's not shown as a young man. He's shown as an old man. And instead of instead of carrying a sword like the others, besides his slingshot, he's carrying a book. And so his contribution is the writing of the Psalms, which were considered to be authored by him. And in terms of masculinity, there are all these contradictions when you come to David. You know, he's someone who, you know, is physically not very strong, but yet he's portrayed as this great warrior, killed Goliath. He's a warrior, but also he's a poet and he's a harpist. And uh, there definitely seems to be uh, contradictions and tensions in the way David is presented. Yes, absolutely. And being a being a small, weak boy and yet able to kill this giant is, I think, it, when, it's an image that's much used today on the sports pages. Right? Um, you know, the, the David team defeats the Goliath team. And it kind of misses what the point of it was in the Middle Ages, which is, and I think originally in the Bible also, which is he does it with, uh, with God's help. And God helps him because he is the chosen one. And later he becomes you know, more of a warrior on his own, but also um, a behind-the-scenes general. So there's, there's one, uh, there's a comment in the Talmud, the Jewish text, that if David hadn't studied Torah— then um, Joab or Joab wouldn't have been able to win the battles. And if Joab hadn't been able to win the battles, David wouldn't have been able to study Torah. So they they complement each other, but David is definitely the one in charge. The people who are going out and winning the battles are doing it on behalf of David. But he he also does, on occasion, fight on his own. And the scene in which he takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head with it is very is very popular in medieval illustration and that even if David is small and weak he has actually cut off this head and he's got it in his hand and he's showing everybody that you know he is actually uh, powerful I can't understand why he's always portrayed, though, as this uh, exemplar of virtue. And even in the New Testament, you always see when they talk about, oh, descended from David. And like, this is something that's that's a, a great thing to have on your on your genealogy, that you're you're descended from David. But yet he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He did bad things. You know, his 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 own CV and track record isn't uh, isn't one of virtue. Yeah, the. The three religious traditions in the Middle Ages each kind of bent themselves into pretzels trying to explain how David is is still holy. And uh, Islam, there, w- there was some debate about it because David was a prophet and could a prophet ever sin? Could he sin and repent? And some commentators said, no, he couldn't sin and repent. Prophets just never sin, you know, Jesus, Muhammad, and so on. And David is considered to be in that company. So they said, well, he didn't actually commit murder. And, you know, he said, put 
put this, uh, put Uriah in the front line, but somebody had to be in the front line and he was a good warrior and that was why he put them there and that he didn't actually sleep with Bathsheba till after her husband is dead. So um, they they say that, uh, you know, what is said about him uh, having committed these things are, you know, the lies of the Israelites and that really he was a prophet. You know, the Jews say he did these things uh, at you know, at the command of God, God wanted him to do it for various reasons, and they give different, re- you know, different commentators give different reasons. But uh, part of the idea was that he was supposed to be an example of repentance to the people after he commits the sin. And this is the idea that the Christians just take and run with, because, of course, repentance is really central to medieval Christianity. Everyone sins Everyone confesses their sins and does penance, and David is the prime Old Testament example of that because he knows he's committed these grave sins of uh, murder and adultery, and uh, he's punished for it in that the child that he conceives with um, Bathsheba dies, and then he he does his penance in uh, sackcloth and ashes and so on, as the prophet Nathan tells him to, and then God forgives him in uh, in a big way, and says, "You know, I will make you, uh, I will make your house a great house, and you'll have a great people descended from you. You know, including the Messiah." So, he's an example for Christians as to you know how you can sin and still repent, and you can see that used when Donald Trump was uh, running for president, and he had all these issues around. Uh, his relations with women and some of the evangelical religious leaders who were backing him were asked by the newspapers, you know, how can you go on backing someone like this? And they said, well, you know, David sinned with Bathsheba and yet he was forgiven and, and became a great king. And they leave out the part that, you know, he repented and— uh, which you don't see so much sign of with modern leaders. It's funny that you bring up Donald Trump because I was thinking of Donald Trump when you talked about how he was seen as an instrument for God because that's how a lot of them describe him now. In 2023, they say, oh, he's doing God's work. So it might be that he himself might be sinful, but that doesn't matter because we're getting the judges we want and the decisions we want. Yes, I I I think that's right. But medieval Christians also... I mean, I don't know, there may be contemporary Christians doing this too that I'm just not as familiar with, but they really interpreted everything in the Old Testament very allegorically. So um, when they're talking, for example, about David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, her husband, uh, Bathsheba represents the Old Testament, and Uriah represents the Jews, and David represents the new dispensation of Christianity, and therefore Uriah is supposed to be killed so Bathsheba, the Old Testament, can come to be with David. That's that's just one example of the allegorical interpretation. So the, the Old Testament was read as a story of things that happened in the past, but it was also read as entirely symbolic uh, and the stories you know, couldn't be taken at face value. The, the other thing I wanted to say about the Old Testament is David's repentance wasn't just, I feel very bad about what I did and I'm going to fast and wear sackcloth and ashes. He also was considered to have written the Psalms and particularly the a group of psalms that are identified as penitential psalms. He was supposed to have written them as a response to to what he had done. So it's part of his repentance. And the authorship of the psalms is why he was considered a prophet. Is really that's the biggest thing in the Middle Ages that makes David great. It's not his defeat of Goliath, and it's not uh, his preparation for his son Solomon to build the temple. It's it's really that he wrote the Psalms and that he couldn't have written the Psalms if he hadn't sinned and repented. Was there any interest in what he was like as a father 
or is that maybe just something that a more modern age would have would have been concerned with? Because first of all, he seems to have so many children. Uh, he definitely doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, encouraged them to to work well together. One of the sons rebels. There's a lot of bad behavior. That there's a lot of disputes. Then when he names Solomon as his heir, like there's it's it's a it's a fractured and fractious family relationship. Yes, I mean he, as depicted in the Bible, he is a terrible father. I mean, one of one of his sons rapes his half sister, and then the uh, the full brother of this half sister uh, goes to take revenge, and they fight, and then this leads to his son Absalom rebelling, and he's eventually killed, and then David mourns for his son, but he's the one who's I mean he knows he's been instrumental in having his son killed, so. But this motif of the son who rebels against the father and also takes his father's concubines to show, you know, that he has taken over the kingship and and he has the power is a very powerful one uh, in the Middle Ages. So you get princes rebelling against their royal fathers all the time, and the chroniclers always use this example of David and Absalom as as a reference as a point of reference for that. I mean, there are a lot of medieval kings you could point to who were also, you know, terrible fathers in the same kind of way. I mean, they have to, on the one hand, they want their sons to follow after them. That's, you know, the whole point of establishing a dynasty. But on the other hand, they don't want their sons to follow after them too soon. They want them to wait till they're good and dead. And in terms of the artistic representations of David, it's fascinating to see that so many visual artists uh, uh, are inspired by the story of David in this period and afterwards. And you see it in in paintings and sculptures. You also see it uh, in terms of poetry and music that uh, he's such a a rich subject for for creative artists. Yes. I mean, the David and Goliath scene, uh, you can see why that one would be very um, attractive to artists because it's the, the contrast between the large and the small. In the Middle Ages, uh, scenes where David looks out the window and sees Bathsheba bathing were quite popular because it was an excuse to paint a naked woman. And also in the Middle Ages, a lot of the art we have from the Middle Ages is manuscript books. And it was common at the beginning of a text to have a portrait of the author, whoever they were. And so every time you have the Book of Psalms, you have a picture of David uh, as as being the author, and usually he's represented. Sometimes he's represented writing, where he's actually writing the psalms. Most often he's represented holding a harp as performing the psalms, and sometimes he has other um, musicians around him performing. So, if actually, if we were uh, if we were on television instead of on radio, I would be showing you my iPad cover, which uh, a friend who has a printing business printed for me because it's a replica of a 9th century Psalter, the Psalter of Charles the Bald. So it's a book of Psalms. And on the cover, it's got David and Bathsheba going to see the prophet Nathan and being assigned their penance. And it's it's one of it's a very beautiful medieval book. That's why I have it printed on my iPad cover. But uh, I also really like it because it has that image from the King David story, and it's one of the few medieval texts uh, to make her part of the repentance. Also, so in the story in the Bible, you know, she's pregnant, but David is the one accused of sin. But because of his sin, their child dies. But it, her. Her feelings about that, about the death of her child, don't really play very much of a role. But uh, what I like about um, the image I have on the cover of my iPad is that it it does have her playing a role there. And she is at least, um, even if she's not doing the penance too, she's a witness to it and she's part of it. How do we reconcile the differences between the the life of David and the legend between what is said about him in the Bible and then the archaeological evidence or lack of it and uh, his appearances in other accounts that there does seem to be big discrepancies between how he's presented in some of the accounts and and what we think happened in others? Yes, I mean, scholars generally don't take the Bible as being an accurate historical text. I mean, it's based on events. 
was there a tribal chieftain named David? Well, probably. I mean, there's a there's an inscription that says uh, from, from I think the 10th century BCE. I wouldn't swear to the date, but uh, that says Beit David or House of David. So that shows that there was somebody by that name uh, around then. They've they've identified some archaeological features uh, in Jerusalem with the life of David, but I think those identifications are are somewhat dubious. But the Bible as we have it, the Hebrew Bible, is uh, a collection of stories with lots of internal contradictions. I mean, even the uh, the books of Samuel, which tell the stories of David, are clearly redactions of texts written at different times and squished together in similar ways to uh, better-known books of the Bible, like, you know, Genesis has two creation stories in it because they were written at different times and kind of edited together, and you can see the seams. Uh, So I'm not bothered by the contradictions between what's in the Bible and what we know archaeologically, because I wouldn't expect uh, the Bible to be an accurate historical record. It's a set of stories that people told to make sense out of their past. Do you think in the Middle Ages they liked the idea and the image of David precisely because he was imperfect, precisely because there were all of these flaws? Yes, and especially if you're a king, you know, he's a here's a king who was able to have all these concubines and have all these children and you know, he didn't he didn't live like a monk and yet he was, you know, a great king and became became a hero and was considered not exactly a saint but a, you know, a patriarch. Yes, absolutely, because even though by the late Middle Ages you get the idea of imitation of Christ, everyone should try to be like Christ, it's not possible. You know, Christ is divine, and it's not possible for people to be like him. And David presented a more uh, achievable goal, you know, that that you can, as one medieval uh, theologian put it, David doesn't teach us that people fall. We already know that. David teaches us that when you fall, you can get up again. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to my colleague in Trinity, Professor Ruth Karras, Leckie Professor of History at Trinity. And she's the author of, well, among her publications, Thou Art the Man, The Masculinity of David in the Christian and Jewish Middle Ages. And Ruth, we're going to have to bring you back onto the show. Oh, I'd love to. My thanks to Professor Ruth Karras. As I say, thank you, Ruth. We'll be back with more on our panel discussion on the life, legends, legacy of King David right after this break. Welcome back. We're talking history. And tonight we are talking about King David, the life, the legend, and the legacy. I'm rejoined by our panel, Professor David Shepherd, Professor in Hebrew Bible Old Testament at Trinity College Dublin, and the founding director of the Trinity Centre for Biblical Studies there, and the author of this groundbreaking new book, King David, Innocent Blood and Blood Guilt, published by Oxford University Press. Also rejoined by Professor Tobias Winwright, Professor of Moral Theology at St. Patrick's Pontifical University, Maynooth University, whose books include After the Smoke Clears, The Just War Tradition and Post-War Justice. And I'm also delighted and now to be joined by Dr. Bridget Martin, teaching fellow in the School of Classics at UCD and an expert on Greek tragedy and blood guilt. And Bridget, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So earlier in the show, we were talking about this idea of blood guilt and how it was such a an important factor for David and kind of a consuming issue at times. How important was blood guilt in the classical world? You definitely find it kind of embedded in Greek tragedy. And for me, if you find something throughout Greek tragedy, it means it was a massive concern in society. That it's something people were trying to to play out on stage and to so make some kind of understanding of it, to figure out what was happening and to overcome it. So you have on stage then the playing out of a lot of different myths. And I have to say, I'm quite struck by how much um, the story of David sounds like a classical myth to me. It's just fantastic, the slaying of the beasts, the making the place safe, and of course the, the blood guilt as well. But within tragedy then, you especially have these families who are caught in these cycles of revenge where blood guilt is transferring from generation to generation. You have, for example, uh, the house of Atreus. So um, people might be familiar with the name Agamemnon. 
who is the great leader of the Greeks at Troy. And he comes in halfway, really, in this terrible cycle of destruction in the family where one death generates the next one and it just keeps going. And it's very much formulated as this idea of blood guilt going from generation to generation where one new murder has to atone in some way for the one that came before until eventually there is resolution and the audience can go away thinking, okay, this has been resolved in some way. So you do find a lot of it in tragedy and we do find the concerns in society as well. Uh, Murder, for example, was seen as a physical stain You literally had blood on your hands. So you were put outside of society. And um, I think David was talking there about avoiding kind of social guilt in some way. And this is something that had to be removed. It had to be richly removed. So somebody had to do this for you. Um, You had to go visit someone and they could purify you. So you had to have this resolution. So you definitely find this idea of Blood guilt going from generation to generation, delayed punishment, innocent blood being shed in response to guilt from generations before. So it's very much part of the consciousness. And I'm struck by what you said about how the story of David reminds you of of other stories from this. Is it because you see kind of elements of 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 the the mythology being kind of retold, or is it just that these heroic elements and 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 controversial elements as well that maybe they they influence later stories? I I think it's all this big this big mixture. When it comes to creating a hero, they need something to overcome, and a great big scary monster is the perfect thing to overcome. So uh, Goliath, obviously, is a great big, scary monster. But even uh, what what David was saying, that, you know, the, the claims of killing beasts, this idea of making a place safe so that civilization can flourish, ridding the countryside of these terrible things that lie over the horizon. This is something that our heroes do. So I, I, I was just sitting here listening and thinking, gosh, this could be Heracles, this could be Theseus, this could be all of them all combined. It's just so familiar. And as well, that idea of, I suppose, acting outside of what is expected by society. I, I see that a bit in David as well. He kind of does what he wants and then he kind of has to step back and say, oh, maybe maybe I should not have done that. I need to get away out of this now. So, yeah, he sounds to me very much part of this mythical tradition, something we see in, you know, myths in many different cultures. David, your new book, you know, just published by Oxford University Press, inspired tonight's show, and it's about innocent blood and and blood guilt. And what's very interesting is that although David sheds so much innocent blood, it's still something that he's, well, he's certainly not comfortable with and it, it influences and shapes so much of the story in, in him trying to maybe come to terms with it and maybe redeem himself from it. Yeah, I think it's been fascinating to me. As I said, I, I kind of grew up with the stories of David and, and I think David does have a real reputation. I mean, the, the stories about David are, are, are full of blood. I mean, if, if they were a film, it would definitely not be PG. It would definitely be, you know, sort of rated R for violence. And I think it has a reputation for being soaked in blood. So what was really interesting to me as I began teaching these stories and and reading these stories again was this sense in which blood is a problem. In other words, there is there is a lot of blood, but it's it's but blood can be a problem, and there, blood is a problem when it is shed when it shouldn't be shed. And as I started to look then more closely, I began to see it as a kind of thread running through virtually all the stories of David throughout through, throughout the the stories that we find in First and Second Samuel and, and the First Kings, and during his rise, um, he is scrupulous. He's scrupulous in his avoidance of shedding illegitimate blood, as we talked about already with Saul. He has every opportunity and every reason to kill Saul and is scrupulous. And then when somebody kills Saul seemingly for David's benefit and for his own benefit, I think, David says, you can't, you can't have done this. You know, you have shed innocent, you have shed not innocent blood for Saul, but blood that shouldn't have been shed. And then he avenges that blood. Right. So he's scrupulous in his rise. There's a moment where he encounters um, a a future wife (laughs) and she makes a point crystal clear to him that if he is to indulge in shedding blood, which should be should not be shed, that this will haunt his kingship. This will haunt his kingship and haunt his dynasty. 
And, and in fact, in his rise, he's scrupulous about avoiding, you know, blood guilt and, and avenging blood guilt because he doesn't want the stain of innocent blood on him. Of course, we talked about Uriah and Uriah and, and uh, Bathsheba, but the rest of his reign is exercised by this question, this anxiety, this haunting of his story by the, the risk of in, in, you know, indulging in, in innocent blood and then, and then how to fix it. If the story was being written now, if it was being you know turned into that hypothetical television series, I think the story of Uriah and Bathsheba would be very troubling because because her voice is really absent in the story. You know, did she did she happily go along with David? Was she happy to see her husband, you know, sacrificed on the front lines? You know, uh, she doesn't seem to have very much agency in the story. She doesn't, and of course, this is something which. <laughs> in this day and age, of course, is absolutely clear and, and is troubling for modern readers, there's no doubt. And, and there are lots of ambiguities in the story. The story isn't very forthcoming on what, as you said, you know, what, you're, what Bathsheba is thinking, what she's feeling. What she's, I mean, there is a reference to her after her husband dies. There is a reference to her mourning. How deeply did she feel that? I mean, she needed to mourn. She was socially obliged to mourn. Um, did she really feel that? Uh, we can't. We, we can't think that she didn't, um, because prior to David's eruption onto the scene in her life, we have no idea that 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 she wasn't perfectly happily married to Uriah. We don't know how David managed to get her to the palace, etc. We just don't know. But what is clear is that we know very little of what she was thinking and feeling, and that's very much at odds with with kind of modern sensibilities around female agency um, and, and a deep concern with what women feel, what they think, what they do, and so on. Tobias, another interesting layer or dimension to this story is the fact that we have different stories, different versions, different accounts. Some are written, some are oral, you know, different people contributing different elements. You have also then different types of other kinds of evidence, archaeological and so on, that, you know, that even when you try and date elements like when did King David rule and so on, that it's it's really like a a composite version that you're you're forced to kind of rely on on all these different and sometimes competing pieces of evidence. Yes, you stated that very well, and that's something we need to keep in mind. A lot of people today, they they see these passages from the Bible as you know inspired by God as something that should be inspirational for us. But from a theological perspective, we need to realize that the scriptures kind of came over decades and centuries, and that um, there's kind of a development in how we understand God and, and right and wrong and, and ethics. Okay, well, I think that's a very powerful note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my panel, Professor David Shepherd of Trinity College Dublin, who's the author of that groundbreaking new book, King David, Innocent Blood and Blood Guilt, published by Oxford University Press. Also, Professor Tobias Winwright, Professor of Moral Theology at St. Patrick's Pontifical University at Maynooth University. And we were also delighted to be joined by Dr. Bridget Martin, Teaching Fellow in the School of Classics in UCD, and Professor Ruth Karras, Lecky Professor of History at Trinity College Dublin. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.